Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Bob Mottram. Hello, Bob. Hello, Tom. So, as this is your first time on Biota Live, although you've been mentioned on, on quite a few previous Biota Lives, would you like to give an introduction to the listening audience and perhaps some uh, background in your interests in artificial life and robotics? Right. Uh, well, my name's uh, Bob Mottram, and... Uh... I'm a software engineer by profession. I've been interested in uh, artificial intelligence mainly, uh, but also sort of peripherally artificial life for a very long time, I think. My interest in AI goes back to uh, teenagehood, really, uh, when I was a, a kid and uh, my, my first computer or second computer, when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Uh, it came with a, um, a book which contained computer programs, which is extremely rare these days, I suppose. There were just listings of programs. Uh, one of those programs was called uh, The Clever Computer. And it was basically a version of the ELISA program written by um, uh, Joseph Weizenbaum. And I remember having tremendous fun and uh, typing that program in and uh, thinking about the possibilities of what if you had more questions and more answers and a bigger memory and uh, this sort of thing. So uh, I've always always been interested in computers and the possibilities of computers and uh, what you can do with them. And my uh, career has pretty much followed that. So I've always tried to uh, stay within the software realm and uh, do as much computer programming and uh, computer-related stuff as possible. And in terms of your, your interest in robotics, w- mm-hmm. when did that start? It probably grew out of just an interest in computers in general. Um, as I said, I was interested in AI from quite a young age. Um, I'd read an article in a, uh, a BBC Micro magazine called, it was an Acorn user, uh, about AI in about 1985, which was quite interesting, although it didn't have anything to do with robotics. I was peripherally aware of uh, robotics and the media and stuff like that, uh, Star Wars and stuff like that, although I was never a big uh, sci-fi fan. Uh, probably the first real robotics that I actually did would be um, making little uh, beam robots out of, uh, out of junk, uh, inspired by a guy called Mark Tilden. Uh, he had an article in Scientific American in the early 1990s I don't remember exactly which year, uh, but I remember reading that and uh, being quite inspired by it, that you could actually make uh, things which moved around and which were uh, almost autonomous, solar-powered, and you could put on a window ledge and just have them roll around and do their own thing. And you could make them really cheaply out of old uh, Sony Walkmans and other kind of electronic junk. Shortly after I got in onto the internet and started milling around on the World Wide Web, there was a web page made by um, a guy whose name I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, but he runs the Solarbotics website, solarbotics.com. And that would, that would have been in around 1995, 96. And I ordered some components off his site and uh, made my first beam robots. Uh, I made quite a few of those in the end, uh, out of all kinds of junk. Uh, I think I only have one now that survives, 
more or less functional and intact on the window ledge. Uh, a lot of the others went by the wayside, degraded, or the gearboxes made out of plastic, sort of got corroded by sunlight, or that sort of thing. So that was my, my first sort of uh, endeavour in robotics, beam robotics. And it's definitely something that, that I would recommend to anyone who who is sort of interested in robotics and wants to try it out, because you can do it at low, very low cost. Um, it gets you involved with using a soldering iron, maybe, and just getting your hands dirty. And you can do it really cheaply, so um, kids can do it as well. So it's definitely a, a good entry point. Uh, it's not, uh, not the, the, the highest intelligence you can get in robotics, but it's, uh, it's a nice little place to start. And in terms of your introduction to the artificial life community, did that come through Steve Grant? I don't think so, no. I was interested in A-Life long before I was even aware of Steve Brand. There was a, a book that I read in the early 90s, I forget what its what its title was, but it was all about artificial life. Was it the Stephen might, Levy book? Might have been Stephen Levy, yeah, yeah, might have been, yeah. And there was another one called, I think it was called Out of Control, which was a bit later, mid-90s. I don't remember who, who wrote it, though. Uh, which also includes some A-Life type stuff. Yeah, I remember reading about that. That was pretty interesting, and uh, it, it fitted well with uh, the kind of stuff I'd read previously about artificial intelligence. Uh, it seemed to fit the, the mould, and uh, it's a bit more expansive than artificial intelligence in that it uh, covers the, the, whole, uh, the whole gambit of survival in an environment, which is more interesting, I think, uh, more holistic. And it kind of gelled with uh, what I'd been reading um, uh, by the philosopher John Searle about, uh, or it might have been Daniel Dennett possibly, about uh, looking at the system as a whole, uh, looking at the whole iguana rather than just some narrow components of it. And I was on a, a course at the time learning C and COBOL. COBOL was pretty horrible, but I quite liked programming in C. And one of the tasks was just like a, a free-for-all task where you could write your own program. And one of the programs I wrote was uh, an A-Life type program, which was like a two-dimensional environment. Uh, it was made up of, uh, of bytes. Each byte represented a, uh, a creature of one kind or another. Uh, and they could move around in a primitive sort of way in uh, sort of compass directions and sort of uh, collide with each other and maybe eat each other. I think my uh, the people who were teaching me were uh, utterly unimpressed by this uh, artificial life program that I'd written because it had absolutely no utilitarian purpose whatever. Uh, but uh, it was quite amusing to me anyway, and uh, it was one of my first ventures into into that sort of area. The the other uh, program which I remember, which was very influential on me, was was uh, one developed from. Uh, a book written by a guy called Randall Beer called Intelligence as Adaptive Behaviour. Uh, that was a simula- uh, simulation of an artificial cockroach which consisted of uh, simulated neurons. And I thought that when I when I saw that in action, I thought that was completely fascinating. I was utterly captivated by it uh, and remained so for quite a number of years afterwards, actually. Uh, uh, for the first time, I could see how it might be feasible to create a sort of artificial organism out of simulated neurons and have it run around and eat things and uh, sort of 
run along walls or avoid obstacles. So I would say that was a, a big influence on my thinking at a, an early stage anyway, with regard to artificial life and uh, possibly robotics as well. There were some robots built in the 1990s, I think, which were based on that sort of idea. Uh, I think uh, the sort of hard equivalents of, of, of that simulation, which I think was originally written in Lisp in around 1990, something like that. Was that the Rodney Brooks stuff at MIT? I seem to remember robotic cockroaches there. Um, but yeah, it, it... yeah, yeah. Although I don't think uh, I don't think it was actually based on on that. Uh, uh, all that sort of stuff was in the air in the early nineties. It was in the popular science magazines, um, the M- MIT Robot Lab stuff like that. So all all those kinds of things were influencing my thinking at that time. And I was a sort of uh, higher education uh, dropout, really. Uh, I did a very I briefly went to a, uh, a technical college in Middlesbrough, but didn't fare very well there at all. And dropped out pretty quickly um, because I was I was always interested in sort of AI and, uh, and that sort of thing, and they weren't uh, even remotely interested there. In fact, they had some contempt for for people who were interested in that sort of subject. So I didn't get get along very well there. Um, so I, I was uh, basically in my early twenties, late teens, early twenties. I was just reading as much as possible about uh, AI, robotics, that sort of stuff. Almost so, as a subject for being in a in a in a robot lab myself. In the, in the early nineties, I was mainly uh, either unemployed or doing very menial kinds of work. Uh, my first real software job was in around 1994-ish. And most of the jobs I'd had, I had up until 1998 were completely unrelated to robotics. They were basic IT, so things like databases, um, accounting software, uh, things of that nature. Uh, sort of getting my foot in the door of the software industry and getting some real practical experience at the sharp end. And it was really only in 1998 that I even had any uh, uh, contact with uh, robotics in a sort of commercial or official sort of capacity. I had done some stuff with robotics prior to 98, as I say, with Beam Robotics. Um, and also I, I bought a, uh, a mobile robot at great expense. It was about £2,000, which was a lot of money for me at the time, from the US uh, it's called a PC Rover. Uh, quite a quite a large blue robot with a, a 486 PC motherboard inside, and some some uh, electronics to control the motors and uh, some ultrasonics on it. So I did some initial experiments on that, and that was quite uh, that was quite interesting and uh, quite useful to get some experience of uh, how robots actually are programmed and the, the fundamental difficulties in getting robots to work. Uh, in 1996, I think it was, or 95, uh, I bought a Kinectis uh, QuickCam, which was the first webcam, and tried using it with this uh, PC Rover robot, and had very, very limited uh, success. But I did present a, um, a poster at a um, meeting at... I think it was Edinburgh University 
related to that, where I was trying to combine the sonar on the robot with some very, very elementary vision to get a, a better idea of uh, distances, ranges around the robot, so it could have some sort of spatial awareness. By the late 90s, I was doing some uh, moderately sophisticated robot stuff, although in a purely hobby capacity, in my spare time, outside of uh, developing databases and accountancy packages and uh, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about the... I mean, certainly the hobbyist artificial life community is quite distinct from the academic artificial life community, and in, in kind of, I guess, describing the notion of a hobbyist with an artificial life, a lot of that comes from the hobbyist robotics community as well. Can you describe the distinction in the hobbyist versus the academic robotics community? And you say that you were still presenting posters at academic conferences, even though that you were a hobbyist. Can you can you describe that liaison at all? Yeah, um, in, in that particular situation, uh, that was one meeting that I went to at Edinburgh. Um, I don't remember the, t- the title of the uh, uh, title of the meeting, but it was something related to artificial intelligence and robotics. And uh, they were asking for people to do posters or write papers for it. Um, so I, I was completely outside of the academic community, um, and I just noticed that this uh, this notice appeared on somewhere on Usenet, probably on one of the robotics, um, maybe comp.ai or comp.ai.robotics, something like that. And I just noticed the most important thing for me was that it was free to show up. You didn't have to pay any uh, subscription fee or anything like that, or conference fee. Um, so I thought uh, I would try and enter it anyway and uh, maybe meet some people who had uh, similar interests. Um so I showed up and various people gave various speeches on various things and uh, some of them were well they were uh, some of them were moderately interesting but uh, not really in the, the areas that, that I was particularly interested in at the time uh, which was mainly just the very simple stuff of uh, learning what is what is in the environment and responding to that in some way a lot of the academic robotics going on at that time seemed to be um, mimicking either the Rod Brooks stuff from the MRT Mobot Lab um, or doing very, very elementary simulation stuff related to uh, typically things like using back propagation neural networks to avoid obstacles in a simulated environment. A very simple obstacle avoidance with simulated sensors on a simulated robot. And it was certainly interesting to to um, meet people in the academic community, and uh, they certainly had a quite a different sort of outlook on things than than I had anyway. Um, they were very much, uh, although I had met people uh, from academia before, mostly in relation to my father's work on botany, and just him having uh, academic people around while I was growing up. Uh, mainly they were sort of uh, quite difficult to talk to uh, quite guarded in their responses to questions but I suppose you'd expect this from academics I mean now now that I know a bit, bit more about that sort of uh, side of things uh, probably these things shouldn't have been a surprise in hindsight <laughs> It is interesting because you are describing the, the perfect dichotomy do you do you want to talk about your, your father's work? 
Um, I don't really know a huge amount about my father's work, really. He's uh, in the horticultural, or was in the horticultural business, and I think he's now the editor of the British Cactus and Succulents Society Journal. Uh, so I, I grew up in an environment which was surrounded by plants, particularly cacti and succulents, uh, in northern England, which is in itself is pretty unusual given the climate. Uh, and he was um, selling plants mainly, plants and books mainly to hobbyists, but also to academics and collectors. So I suppose you could say that uh, I'm quite familiar with being in an environment with other hobbyists and hobbyists' sorts of uh, passion for their subjects, uh, that sort of thing. Um, although I never really took a, a massive interest in uh, what my father was doing and uh, uh, I don't have any great knowledge of cacti myself, uh, although people sometimes assume that I do. But in terms of your knowledge of biology and you, your, you know, relative readings and these kind of things, it's interesting because the, the description of hobbyist and the way that it's often used in a, I don't want to say derogatory sense, but in in a way which is not, um, is is not exa- is is the exact opposite of what you're actually describing. That what you're describing is a lifetime passion that is not necessarily em- embodied in in academia. Um, but well, perfect. just just from experiences uh, with my father um, and the people he he knew, I would say that there tends to be a bit of a uh, a clash between the academic community and the hobby community. Hobbyists often seem to uh, believe that academics are um, not that smart; that they don't know their fields very well; and that they're often just doing it for the money. Uh, and that they're given uh, positions uh, beyond their expertise. And I don't know very much about it from the academic side, but uh, that's often the, the hobbyist sort of viewpoint. I, I can hear the torches being lit. I think you're uh, <laughs> you're <laughs> you're describing the uh, the dichotomies perhaps particularly too sensitively for the artificial life community as well. So for beautifully put, Bob. Um, so moving on from this late nineties, uh, you're you're developing databases in your day job, and uh, you're working on robotic vision as your hobby. How did it continue yes. from there? So in nineteen ninety eight, I got my first real job in the you could say the robotics industry. And that was in the, um, the glass container industry. And this was a complete contrast to previous jobs that I'd had, which had been a lot more oriented towards retail, um, whereas this was much more industrial, um, dealing with hostile environments, um, and really uh, pushing uh, the computing to the limit, really, both in terms of computing power and in terms of the kinds of environments that computers can existing without failing. Um, so the machines that I was working on were uh, things which are used in manufacture of glass articles like uh, bottles, containers, uh, of various kinds, anything ranging from the sort of massive uh, magnum champagne bottles you see at uh, Formula One events down to really, really tiny uh, perfume containers or um, olive oil containers, things like this. And they're sort of handling these sorts of um, 
uh, glassware as they're literally, literally as they're being made from molten glass. So there's a lot of safety aspects to consider. Um, everything has to be really, really accurately timed and sequenced um, within the range of a few milliseconds so that uh, everything happens in the right order. Um, and you don't uh, you get don't get things falling over or crashing into other things. So um, I think the glass industry was a a really nice industry to get into, and uh, it taught me an awful lot in all kinds of ways, uh, both about industrial robotics and about just about the process of inventing things from scratch um, and the kinds of expertise that need to come together to be able to uh, to build a commercial system. In the in that sort of robotics, there's very little in regards to uh, actual AI, and most of it is um, classical control theory, uh, being able to uh, sequence things and control them accurately, uh, avoid uh, oscillations, uh, being able to diagnose things using oscilloscopes. Uh, sometimes even like stroboscopes, things like that, to make sure that things are running at the right speed. Um, so it's it's pretty pretty uh, fascinating industry to work in. Although it's also um, uh, quite, as I, as I mentioned before, it's quite uh, quite a hostile industry when you're actually installing things. The, the areas that I was uh, installing in are what's known as the, the hot end of the, the glass container production. Uh, the temperatures are very high. Uh, there are annealing layers in, involved, which are uh, gradually cooling down the, uh, the hot containers, so the the atom will fall, fall into a nice lattice structure uh, to give them maximum toughness. Um, so it's hot. It's extremely noisy. You need earphone ear ear protectors to protect your hearing, uh, and it's also there's also a lot of high frequency vibration. Uh, in the early days we had uh, embedded PCs and some of the industrial robots that were uh, handling these glass articles and uh, it seems laughable now but they were running Windows 95 and they also had hard disks and the, <laughs> the hard disks lasted for all of a, uh, maybe a few months at most before they tended to destroy the, destroy themselves and uh, I would frequently get returned to where you could take the hard disk out of the PC and uh, just to rattle it in your hand, you could literally hear the broken pieces of the, the platters just rattling around. Uh, so hard disks lasted uh, for a very short periods of time, but fortunately, uh, in the late 90s, flash disks were beginning to emerge, and uh, I managed to get some uh, some uh, operating systems installed onto flash disks, which was a, a challenge in itself at that time because they were very small by today's standards. But uh, I think uh, we were probably early adopters of, uh, of flash disks for, for use as a hard disk substitute, just out of pure necessity, really. So as I say, pretty, pretty interesting industries to work in. Uh, lots of stuff going on. Uh, constant innovation from year to year. Uh, and although theoretically each machine that was shipped was usually supposed to be identical, in practice, there were nearly always customer requirements, which meant that uh, machines had little tweaks here and there to make them suitable for uh, a given type of factory. And that involved international travel as well, travelling to mostly to different places in Europe. Uh, 
I even under under one condition, I even got to travel uh, business class on one particularly urgent job when they needed somebody really, really fast. Uh, one thing about that, that industry is, uh, as with most industrial manufacturing, is that production is king, and anything which halts production, even for minutes or hours, is uh, is a major problem, uh, where you're potentially losing large amounts of money per hour. So um, the cost of flying somebody to a location is uh, is probably quite small compared to the amount of money that you can potentially lose uh, in production. Uh, so uh, a completely different world from the world of hobby robotics, certainly. And uh, as I say, pretty interesting stuff. While, no, while I was uh, working there, I was also um, uh, continuing with my interests in AI. And I started to build a, a humanoid robot, eventually called Rodney. Uh, and that was really just to help me experiment with uh, AI algorithms and uh, vision algorithms particularly. Um, the kinds of things that I wasn't getting to do it on the industrial side, on the commercial side. And uh, so you built Rodney? And uh, in terms of the experiences from that, were there, was there any venting into the stuff that you'd looked at previously uh, relating to artificial life, or was it just a... Uh, I, I don't even know the, the, the methodology associated with building humanoid robots. Well, what kind of components uh, went into it, and what did you learn from the experience? Uh, I should probably describe a bit of the history of the Rodney robot. Uh, it goes back to about year 2000 uh, at that time I was living in the centre of York uh, and if anybody knows York it's quite a it's a 2000 year old city in the north of England um, originally founded as a fort by the Romans and eventually taken over by the Vikings I believe uh, called Jorvik by the Vikings uh, anyway I was living in York and uh, in, around 2000 I was kind of wandering around York looking at all this fancy architecture and wondering whether there was any computational way that I could um, maybe um, uh, build models of all these uh, uh, tremendous buildings with their uh, gothic architecture. Uh, and I looked around on the web at the time and um, found one website, which I think was the University of Cambridge, where they had some sort of uh, demo program, uh, which was... a um, intended to reverse engineer the structure of buildings from camera images uh, mainly by tracing lines over the image um, uh, manually um, indicating key points on the image and then manually matching them to other images um, basically manually solving the what's called the multi-view stereo problem and I tried uh, using that and had very very almost no success with it, whatever. It came out with really disastrous results, so I thought there must be some some better way than this to, uh, to handle this kind of problem. And it would be really nice. My, my fundamental motivation at that time was that it would be nice if future generations could kind of look back on York and um, see the changes in buildings and see the uh, three-dimensional structure of buildings uh, at that point in history. If we have that sort of data for, say, hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, it would be really interesting to see the, the evolution of the city over the previous 2,000 years. Um, so at that time, that was my my main uh, 
sort of thinking and, and reason for, for getting into that sort of thing. But I, as I say, I'd had really no success with um, some of the demo programs that I'd seen on academic sites. Um, so I was kind of searching around the web for stuff related to uh, obtaining 3D information from camera images. Uh, probably the, one of the first things that I found was a, a 1996 paper by um, a guy named Hans Moravec, um, where he'd, uh, he'd managed to get some 3D information from stereo cap. Uh, I think that was at CMU uh, University in the United States. Um, and the results there looked pretty good. They, they looked uh, like something which would be of interest that maybe you could, might even be able to use to reverse engineer the structure of buildings. Um, and so I, I kind of uh, wandered around York and thought of a name for this project, which was which I originally thought of as uh, calling it the Sentience Project. Um, I don't really particularly remember why I called it that. It just uh, just something that happened to pop into my head at the time, and uh, and which doing a, a search on the web at the time showed that nobody else was using that title for a project. Um, so I had some initial goes at taking photographs of buildings and from different locations and then uh, computationally trying to write a program in, at the time in Visual Basic to match these images together and try to compute distances. Uh, I think that program might even still be somewhere uh, in the... Uh, in the backwaters of my website uh, on the old version of it. Uh, so, once again, just like the uh, the demo program from, I think it was Cambridge, uh, I had very, very little success in doing this. But intuitively, it seemed like a problem that ought to be solvable. Um, it's really just triangulation. If you, if you know the positions of the cameras and the orientations of the cameras, you know matching points then you should be able to triangulate those points in space uh, projecting out the rays from the cameras or projecting in the rays from the point to back to the camera imager um, and then calculate its distance and then figure out the uh, geometry of the, the scene but it turns out uh, I was quite naive in the, the early stages uh, and that this is quite a hard problem and it turns out to be a problem that uh, a lot of academic research has been expended on over, over the last two or three decades. Um, so, after a while of wandering around York taking photos, uh, no doubt in a highly suspicious manner, um, I decided that it, uh, in the rain and snow and so on, um, and at, at around that time there was also um, flooding as well, um, I decided that it might be a good idea to uh, to try to um, make this problem a bit more containable by uh, making it into something that I could do uh, back at my flat uh, without having to wander around in the cold with a camera. So I thought of uh, uh, using a couple of webcams as a substitute and then just using those webcams situated on the desktop to look at objects on the desktop and try to figure out their three-dimensional structure. So you can see on uh, on my website, if you look at some of the Rod early Rodney stuff, it's basically just a aluminium frame with a, uh, a servo 
uh, panning to uh, uh, quick cams. Uh, I think they're quick cam express cameras uh, in a fairly fairly crude sort of way. Initially, I think I only had a, a pan axis, which just panned the, the cameras around. But eventually, I also added a tilt, which tilted them up and down. And that's really how, uh, how the Rodney robot started. Uh, it was I named it Rodney because uh, partly after Rodney Brooks, and partly after a well-known sitcom uh, character from a sitcom called Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> uh, knowing how, how limited artificial intelligence is and how how stupid even the best algorithms are. I thought that was kind of, kind of uh, appropriate sort of name. So that, that was the, the, the fundamental origin of, of Rodney as a, as a platform to try and experiment with spatial awareness and sensing space using cameras, trying to calculate three-dimensional models and things of that nature. And in this vision experiment moved into a humanoid robot yeah the, the humanoid aspect of it um, was really inspired by uh, probably inspired mostly by uh, a robot at MIT called COG which was uh, developed primarily by Rodney Brooks although also worked on by many other people uh, when I'd initially got onto the internet in around 1994 um, one of my main motivations for getting onto the internet was to get access to papers on artificial intelligence. And at around about that time, they started, um, MIT happened to, the MIT AI lab happened to be one of the um, early academic um, sites to become available and to even make papers available online. Um, in a, a, what at the time was a really horrendous format called PostScript, and it required you to, to use something called PostScript to view it. Uh, at the time I was using Windows 3.1, and uh, the version of PostScript on Windows 3.1 was just horrible. It was so uh, bug-infested, it was unbelievable, and the, the lengths that I went to to download various papers from MIT on the COD robot was uh, quite extraordinary, really, <laughs> by today's standards, certainly. Many hours of fruitless downloading and partial downloading and joining files together and lines dropping and stuff like this. So I've been interested in that sort of stuff and uh, read a lot of the papers related to development of COG. So I thought since I've got these, so fast forwarding to 2000, 2001-ish, I thought I've got these cameras and... uh, uh, they're stuck on top of the platform, so I might as well have a go at uh, something which might be uh, similar to a cog robot. It'd be a lot smaller, be far lower budget, but uh, fundamentally the kinds of things that the cog robot was doing and the problems that it was tackling seemed like the kinds of things that I could tackle on a desktop using pretty uh, low-cost, rudimentary hardware. Um, there were some very sophisticated things done with the COG robot in terms of developing novel types of actuators. I think they were called series elastic actuators, which had compliance to them. But to my way of thinking, developing these novel actuators didn't seem like something which was absolutely fundamental to being able to have 
some sort of intelligence or some sort of some sort of adaptivity and be able to recognize things in your environment and maybe even just uh, in simple terms point to things um, rather than actually manipulating them. So that was my initial motivation for turning a couple of cameras on a stand into something which looks a bit more like a humanoid. And even today, the Rodney Robot is, is mostly uh, a couple of cameras on a stand. Uh, the actual body and arms and so on uh, rarely come into play. For, for most of the last decade, I've, I've been really primarily just working on the very, very elementary task of having a robot be able to perceive its environment, be able to see what's in the environment, be able to see the shape of the environment. Because to my way of thinking, if you can't see those very simple things, if you can't see the shape of what's around you, then your intelligence is extremely limited. Rodney went through quite a number of revisions. And in the early days, I, I tried to do it in the same sort of way that I would approach a problem in a commercial environment. And I actually did do some drawings uh, and drew things out and uh, measured things. Did it the proper way. Uh, but I soon found out that, uh, of course, my nice drawings often really didn't really fit with reality or once I'd actually assembled the hardware, I noticed that there were things which were out of place or could be done better. So uh, after that, I went for a more sort of uh, Heath Robinson, uh, seat of the pants kind of approach and designed things in a much more uh, hobbyist, uh, on the fly sort of way. Uh, just taking measurements by by thumb, only taking occasional measurements, and very rarely doing anything resembling a, a technical drawing. And that's that's uh, that suited me well, at least for the time being. Uh, over the years, people have asked me for for drawings and uh, plans for the robot. And I've always said that uh, it's really a purely a one-off sort of research robot. Uh, I don't really have any details drawings or plans that could easily be reproduced. Uh, I did make a, a sort of inventory on my website, uh, but it's not at the level of high detail. So you would have to ad-lib quite a bit to, uh, to make something similar. For folks listening in who may not be familiar with the hobbyist robotics community, it's, it's probably relatively difficult to describe something like that succinctly, but can you give some general description to the community and how it may compare to the artificial life hobbyist community. Right, well, I'm, I'm not massively familiar with the artificial life hobbyist uh, community, so uh, uh, I don't have an awful lot to compare against. Uh, but certainly for my part, uh, I was mostly assembling uh, pre-built parts that I bought in. So things like the servo control, uh, the cameras themselves, uh, the communication between the PC and the robot. All these were things which I hadn't actually physically made myself from... Uh, I hadn't made the circuits or the... Really, I hadn't built the electronics from scratch. I just uh, assembled it. So I've always kind of tried to follow that sort of approach with, uh, with building stuff. Now, I'm not sure whether that happens within the A-Life community, in terms of building from pre-made parts. No, that's not a... Yeah. 
you could say that the same applies uh, in robotics also in terms of the software, in that historically robotic software has tended to be written from scratch. It's only relatively recently within the last few years that there's been even attempts to standardise software and uh, uh, avoid having to rebuild fundamental components, uh, such as the asynchronous communication between different parts of the robot. So I probably haven't got a tremendous amount to say on that just because my knowledge of the AI community isn't very great. Okay, well, in removing the, the contrast then, how would you describe the robotics hobbyist community? Uh, it's certainly vibrant. Uh, there's a lot of uh, passion around it. Um, there are a number of uh, stores, commercial enterprises sell, selling hobbyist parts or even complete robots. Uh, and I've seen those uh, only get larger over the last decade or more. A lot of stuff that uh, hobbyists do with robots is um, not at the level of high intelligence, but often things like uh, walking or avoiding obstacles. Uh, but over the years, I've seen there's, there's an increasing uh, convergence between what hobbyists do and what academics do in research. Uh, and especially uh, in the last couple of years with a system called uh, the Robot Operating System, uh, originally made by a company called Willow Garage. You can see that robotics hobbyists and academics are really definitely converging on the same target. So that's interesting. Can you? It, so it's through shared goals that they're converging? It is, yes. I think so, yes. Very interesting. As I say, as I say going back to some of the stuff with, with Rodney, uh, the, the kinds of uh, problems that you come up against when you build any sort of robot um, are pretty, uh, pretty well known now. And uh, they're often related to perception of the environment. And it's only really quite recently that uh, good solutions for that sort of, to overcome that sort of problem have emerged. And you can see that uh, in, in recent times, that's emerging partly from academia, but also with some help from hobbyists too. So what came after Rodney? After Rodney, um, I also made a... Uh, uh, an anthropomorphic robot called Flint. And this was a kind of a, a chimp-like robot. I thought it would be quite fun to, uh, to make something which was uh, a bit more animatronic, just to experiment with that sort of thing. So I'd seen the, uh, the movie AI, which I thought was quite terrible, but it did have uh, this uh, walking, talking teddy bear in it. I thought it might be interesting to do something which is kind of similar to that, or have a go at that. Um, so I looked around uh, for teddy bears uh, of various sizes. Uh, the ones I saw anyway were pretty expensive. So I looked around for other possible alternatives and looked at various kinds of puppets. And eventually uh, on the web came across a website which was selling um, chimp puppets, which looked quite realistic. I thought this was uh, potentially quite quite, uh, quite a nice uh, animatronic subject. Uh, rather than going for a, a teddy bear, 
I looked around on the internet and found a website that was selling uh, chimp uh, models, or they're, they're actually ventriloquist dummies, which were hollow inside. But they look quite realistic, so I thought this was, this was uh, quite a good uh, potential subject for turning into a robot. Uh, so I actually bought one of those and uh, took it apart, uh, took out all the stuffing, and uh, inserted various contraptions. Uh, I've actually got some images of the flint robot without the, uh, the external covering. I had a go at uh, animating that. It's, it's, it was quite tricky, particularly to get the, um, uh, the skeleton inside the, the head of the uh, the head of the, the chimp dummy. That involved quite a bit of uh, jiggery pokery to get things the right size and dimensions and so on. Uh, but I did manage to, to figure that out in the end. And the Flint robot uh, was operation for a while, maybe in 2003, four. Uh, I didn't do an awful lot with it actually, uh, and even now it's uh, it's kind of largely on the shelf, mostly unused. The distance between the eyes, the distance between the cameras I was using in the eyes, it's pretty small. I think it's only about three centimeters, something in that order. So the the amount of stereo that you can get from it is uh, is pretty minimal. And the resolution of cameras that I had at the time was, was also not very good. So I didn't have very good results on that. Um, although it was, it was quite amusing to, uh, to to have this thing animated and uh, move around and uh, sort of shock people <laughs> when it suddenly moved without warning, unexpectedly. So I had a, a brief sort of foray into uh, animatronics, but didn't go very far down that line. And what happened after, after Flint? What came then? After Flint, uh, is the uh, the robot that I, I'm currently working on, which is called... Oh, actually, there was one before that. It's called Grok 1. Uh, that was based on um, something called the Quirk, which is a piece of electronics made by a company called Charmed Labs, uh, which has uh, a little computer on board, and it has a lot of other stuff which is related, quite uh, makes it quite suitable for robotics. Uh, if you have a look on the Charmed Labs website, you can probably see it there. Um, there's, well, there's, there's a number of um, CMU-related projects around that, mainly related to education, getting uh, kids or students interested in robotics and having them uh, be able to put together a robot quite quickly and easily. So uh, around about 2006, or the beginning of 2007, uh, I noticed all that was going on and thought I would have a go with that particular hardware and made a, uh, a, uh, a tele-robot out of it. In other words, just a, a robot with a camera on it which was connected to the internet so you can drive it around from a, an internet-based interface uh, with a pan and tilt so you can move the camera around and a, a couple of tracks on the bottom, like tank tracks. Now, the tank tracks weren't very successful. Uh, in hindsight, I probably should have used wheels, just fairly large wheels. Uh, tank tracks, as it turns out, don't really work very well on, on carpets, especially if they're longish carpets. Uh, they tend to get stuck. 
they're also very inefficient when you try to turn. You get a lot of slip and uh, position pose error that way. Uh, energetic, you're probably not very efficient either. But uh, that was that was the uh, that was a robot built in around 2006, stroke seven. And I always knew that that would be a kind of uh, intermediary robot, uh, because. Uh, just as with Rodney, I was mainly interested in this uh, vision problem of uh, the robot understanding its surroundings and the shape of its surroundings and what's in its surroundings. Um, so the the actual uh, quirk board didn't really have enough computational power to be able to tackle the sorts of problems I was really interested in. It was possible that I could transmit the images to a PC and then do it on a PC. Uh, but that maybe wasn't ideal from the, the way the way it was set up. So I, I always kind of knew, while I, even while I was building that Grok 1 robot, that I would probably need another robot at some later stage, which was probably capable of carrying a PC or a laptop or something of that order, um, where I could sort of apply the, the full weight of Moore's law to the problem of uh, uh, vision and understanding the environment. By the time 2007 came along, I was living in Sheffield and uh, earning a decent wage uh, in a different uh, industrial sector, but also related to computer vision. Uh, so at that time, I started uh, building the Grok 2 robot, which is the robot that I've currently got and I'm currently working on. Uh, that's a much larger robot. It's, uh, it's based on um, a bought-in robotic base uh, which comes from a company based in America called uh, Zagros Robotics uh, it's got a website uh, I think it's called zagrosrobotics.com uh, it's an AL101 base for anyone who's interested uh, it's pretty large it's got easily enough capacity inside it to stick a PC motherboard or a laptop uh, plenty of space for electronics and if at some stage I want to put a, a large car battery or some other type of battery uh, at the bottom of it there's ample space for that kind of thing as well and I also wanted something which could which was mobile unlike the Ro Rodney robot which has no legs and can't move around under its own steam I wanted some, something which could move around on wheels and where the cameras were approximately the same height as uh, as a typical sort of adult human. So you could see the world from a sort of human perspective. Uh, just to get some idea of what, what kind of things people can see, what kind of things people are interested in. Because if you've got, uh, if you've got a robot which is close to the floor, as many experimental robots are, uh, the view from, the, from close to the floor is uh, incredibly uninteresting. You can't see things like desk, desk surfaces or it's very difficult to see door handles, anything that, which is really of uh, very much interest to, to people. So I wanted something which was fairly large in that case. Um, that's uh, more or less what I've, what I've got. I've actually got, uh, so I've got the AL101 base with uh, what is actually uh, a drain pipe stuck on top of it, which is acting as a kind of neck. Uh, on top of which there's a head with stereo cameras. 
And I've been experimenting with various types of vision on top of this robot, uh, such as omnidirectional vision using a, a mirror um, or a pair of stereo cameras made from four webcams. In terms of the the logical progress from this, mm-hmm. you uh, throughout your development of, of robots, the software component has been, I guess, has moved more into from roll your own into open source component tree. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what's available now in terms of open source for robotics? Right. There are uh, an increasing number of pieces of software that are available for open source robotics. Um, probably the main one at the moment is called uh, called ROS, Robot Operating System. And unlike as the name suggests it's not actually an operating system in itself it's more like a a set of commands uh, operating system commands so it's primarily intended to run on Linux although I think it does run on other platforms and it basically uh, replaces uh, or has equivalent commands to the sorts of commands you would find in Unix so things like make uh, or clean this sort of thing. We're actually uh, building uh, uh, components of robotic software and, and this sort of stuff is pretty useful because it takes a lot of the drudge work out of, uh, out of uh, getting systems to communicate with each other, uh, transmitting information from one place to another such as images or uh, encoder data, things like this. Uh, previously from about 2005 onwards, uh, I had written my own system, which was which was doing something which was quite close to, to what ROS does. Uh, it was written in, in C sharp. It was called uh, Robot Bridgeware. Uh, but by 2009, I'd noticed that the ROS system was doing some stuff which was sufficiently impressive and sufficiently similar to stuff that I was writing myself that I might as well just ditch what I was writing and adopt that because it had a larger community around it and was better debugged than what I was doing at the time. Uh, but apart from Ross, there are plenty of other things as well which are of, of interest. Uh, systems like Oracos. Uh, there's a system called Mobile Robot Toolkit, I believe. Uh, which is mainly uh, related to SLAM uh, algorithms, I think, although other stuff as well. Uh, and there's uh, open, open, open SLAM, which is a, a list of open source algorithms for simultaneous localization and mapping, which is quite useful. Uh, mostly developed uh, under the guise of academic institutions of various kinds. It's uh, definitely accessible to hobbyists as well. Also, another interesting development uh, is a site called Raw Seeds, where people can upload datasets related to robotics. And what they've tried to do is um, develop some benchmark tests so that you can potentially test algorithms against each other in different environments and say, this this algorithm is so much better than that algorithm in a given environment, and that's that's. Uh, I'm really impressed by that, and that's uh, that's a really uh, 
the directions they're going in, that it turns robotics into much more of a science than it was previously, where you can really quantitatively make comparisons between systems, um, uh, compare their performance in different conditions. So there's quite a bit of stuff out there. There's, there's no doubt other stuff that I, I'm not mentioning. Uh, certainly any any trawl through uh, SourceForge or other open source uh, sites can uh, bring up probably numerous open source projects related to robotics. And I guess realigning, realigning to the topic of artificial life... Mm-hmm. Um, your first, I mean, I, I'm trying to think when I when we first started corresponding, but your first main correspondence in the artificial life community, when did you start reaching out to the artificial life community? I'd written one or maybe maybe a few artificial life-like programs in the early 1990s. Um, but I was never really involved with the artificial life community as such. Uh, and been a, a listener to uh, Biota uh, mainly I think I learned about Biota possibly through Steve Grand maybe he had a link to it on his website something like that um, but I've been a listener to uh, podcasts about artificial life and that sort of thing for a while I would describe myself as having a peripheral interest in artificial life rather than being an active practitioner unless you qualify the robotic stuff as being within artificial life, which it might be. Possibly, possibly. In terms of your contributions, though, you've contributed a, a substantial amount recently to No Belabe. Have you yeah. worked with any other artificial life projects? I haven't, no, no. Uh, no Belabe is the first open-source artificial life project that I've been involved with, other than my own little projects from many, many years ago. And I guess through Biota you found no blape. That's right, yes. Yes. In terms of your experiences in robotics, um, aside from, I guess, the C programming language, what do you think you brought into the no blape development? Well, probably certainly uh, uh, more complexity surrounding social interactions. Uh, things like having a uh, a social graph of sorts, uh, just uh, fleshing out some of the uh, interactions between uh, beings in the simulation. I thought it would be interesting to maybe look at the question of is it possible to develop a, um, an artificial society. Uh, in the early to mid-1990s, I'd read uh, at least one book uh, maybe two, maybe got a few out from libraries, which included articles about the possibility of simulating society, studying how societies develop, um, things like that. So I had a kind of peripheral in the background interest in that sort of that sort of aspect of it. And it's, uh, it seems to be an interesting open question which nobody else is really addressing: how do societies originate in the beginning? And how do they evolve? What sort of properties do they have? Can you move towards a scientific understanding of society? Um, can you have a, a scientific understanding of cultural evolution? Um, and you can look at memetics and things like this. There's lots of interesting possible things that you could look at. 
in relation to that. Uh, I should say as well that uh, I'd always had a, a kind of interest in the possibility of developing a, a, a simulation of a, a natural system which was moderately realistic. Uh, as far as I know, this has never, ever occurred. But it would be really nice if some individual or organisation um, tried to develop a, a simulation of an environmental niche, like, say, a pond or a puddle or something, uh, a micro-niche, something quite small. But then they tried to simulate the uh, biological entities within that niche in as much realism as we know how to simulate with current knowledge, current biological knowledge. And that would be a really interesting thing, and you'd be able to look at how those ecosystems work and where the missing knowledge is. That's probably the most interesting aspect. Um, what is it that we don't understand about ecosystems and the dynamics of ecosystems? And as far as I know, nobody's really done that, but I could be wrong because uh, I'm not an expert on the A-Life community. Returning to your idea of creating the simulated society, I guess this is almost returning to your hobbyist academic distinction as well. I mean, one of the problems that I find developing Noble Ape, and this really came through the uh, Stanford Research Institute talk that I gave in, in July this year, is that you put all this energy into this thing, this simulation, you know, you, you construct various things yeah. and you create it, and then you have to work out a way that you can get the academics that would be te- you know, interested in these areas involved with the simulation. Now, you describe with the robotics community that the hobbyists had been very successful in terms of integrating with the academics based on shared goals. In terms of the perceived shared goals here, how do you think, uh, you know, one should reach out to the academics and explain that you have this environment? Is I mean, obviously, clearly there are shared goals there, but there is an additional component that seems to be missing in the artificial life community. What, what do you think we could learn from the robotics community in this slide? Well, it depends what those shared goals are. They're probably best way to proceed is to maybe try and elucidate what those goals are. Um, certainly within the robotics uh, community, there are uh, anybody who gets involved with robotics usually comes up against some pretty hard problems pretty quickly. Uh, and those are shared across uh, hobbyists and the academic community. Um, to what extent that happens with A-Life, uh, I'm not sure. I guess what you're describing with the uh, academic and hobbyist communities with robotics is that they're both shared technical communities. And the difficulty with regards to A-Life is that it's a technical community that then needs to liaise with what you would hope would be a technical community, but actually turns out to be, um, for example, uh, biologists or within the social sciences, a wide variety of other academics. There are elements of these disciplines that are moving into uh, computational methods. I'm thinking of computational linguistics in particular. But in general, there is a not necessarily a resistance, but certainly a very striking perception that anything that is simulated is strictly artificial and very much a kind of reduced subset. 
And I guess the problems that we've found in Noble Ape and the stuff we've been talking about recently in terms of the need to carry statistics and have interactive graphing and show representations and actually give this complexity uh, a very uh, visual and uh, understandable or at least um, graphable form is, is part of that problem which I think probably makes the stuff that I'm describing in terms of artificial life reaching out to uh, the biological or the social sciences quite distinct from the robotics view, where you say it is very, um, uh, not to make a pun, but very nuts and bolts related <laughs> problems um, <laughs> versus uh, something which is distinctly more abstract. I guess the, yes. the shared, this is the interesting thing with regards to the uh, posters, um, because this is something that I've thought about, and I'll I'll be going to what what is a, a theoretical, philosophical, biological conference in Salt Lake City next year. But the potential actually to create posters and deliver them and write papers and do all the things that I think we're probably already doing in the artificial life community in terms of linking with um, perhaps semi or non sympathetic academics is is being done. But um, what you describe in robotics seems to be very much because of shared goals, these things can be uh, meted out a lot, a lot faster. But I guess it's a you know it's a long term it's a long term project, um, and certainly you know these things will take decades, not weeks, unfortunately. Yeah, well, certainly in the case of robotics, I think the the common goal is the real world. The real world is the enemy that you're up against that you're trying to understand uh, and that you're trying to uh, react to. Uh, in the artificial life context, it might be uh, might be better to uh, if you can produce a lot of uh, statistical output graphs and so on. Uh, it might be the case that academics can then recognise from these graphs that the problems that the hobbyists are dealing with are kind of similar to things that they're also familiar with within their realm of expertise, um, and it, that might be a good way to define some common ground. Hmm. if you can make it more graphical. Yeah, uh, it, it would be a, a problem. I was thinking, I mean, in parallel to this, uh, there's a, a project I'm working on called the Biota Transcripts, which takes all the audio from previous Biota Lives and creates a academic, I mean, basically something that academics that want searchable or electronic forms can then use to reference. And what you're describing here is exactly the same issue in terms of the fact that what we produce as simulators may be something which is, you know, abstract and intricate from our own perspective, but it's translating it to very simple things, as you say, like graphs and uh, yeah. things that is the, yeah. translating it really to the language of the uh, the academics that, are, uh, that that may actually use this. And I think yeah, that that's a that's a very good point. And the interesting thing through your interaction with Noble Ape, I'd encourage all artificial life developers to. Uh, bring in as many people as possible to their projects, but also f folks such as yourself who are, are um, if, if, not, um, if not experts through profession, experts through experience can, uh, <laughs> can yield, you know, from, from different areas, can provide amazing insights. And certainly that's been my uh, experience working with you with Bobble Ape. And certainly, I mean, yeah. much, much thanks to you, Bob, because... I was thinking this, that the talks that I gave in July would have been relatively boring if it weren't for your uh, particular <laughs> input. And I think the stuff that um, you've added to Noble Ape, I'm still decompressing um, in terms of the potential impact and potential direction. 
Um, but yeah, it really does add a, 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 an additional richness. In terms of the other artificial life projects, I mean, you've listened to uh, previous Bio podcasts. In terms of other yes. artificial life projects, what other projects that you've heard about interest you? Artificial life projects? Yes. Well, I've not heard of all that many, to be honest. Um, I've heard of Steve Grant's stuff with creatures. Uh, I've read about uh, simulations such as Polyworld and some of the old stuff like um, Core Wars. But apart from that, I don't think I know really. I, I don't, don't really have my finger on the pulse of uh, artificial life simulations, so I'm, I'm probably way out of date and don't really know very much about them. So you mentioned the idea of simulating even a confined environment like a, a pond or a puddle with the maximum amount of possible uh, contemporary uh, biological knowledge in a computer yeah. simulation. Yeah. Uh, is this the kind of direction that you'd like to see the artificial life community going? Basically, I, I don't know, representing our current knowledge base and then just pushing it forward through additional simulation time? Is this the, is this the image that you see? Possibly that might be an interesting avenue to go down, and um, if you if you do go down that route, then um, may well be able to attract attention from other uh, academic fields, uh, biology, uh, ethology, so on. Because if you can demonstrate a simulation which looks pretty uh, credible, is using the uh, the most advanced knowledge that's known at the time about those particular organisms, then um, you can maybe define some common ground with uh, with other biologists. So, for example, if the simulation doesn't match what the what you know from biology, you can consider why it doesn't match it and what's wrong and uh, try and figure that out. Very good, very good. Well, Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today on, on Bio to Live. I, I know that you've been a an avid listener for uh, a number of years, and I'd, I'd like to also invite on other folks like Bob who may not necessarily be artificial life practitioners but certainly see Venns in their own work or their own interests uh, onto the Biota podcast because uh, it, it really is wonderful to have people such as yourself uh, on the podcast, Bob. Yeah, okay. No problem. Well, thank you, Bob, for, uh, for the chance to chat today. It's been a pleasure. Talk to you Cheers, soon. Tom. Take care.